Today I am determined to finish the attributes of God. We've been on this for a long time, and so we're going to wrap that up today. Uh, last week we began looking at the subject of the sovereignty of God, and we talked about God's sovereignty over the universe, over the physical world, uh, the affairs of nations, human successes and failures, human actions, human thoughts, uh, Satan and the demons. And before we get to the last two points, we're going to watch a clip from John Piper uh, talking about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over the most random things you can imagine. Proverbs 16:33, the lot is cast in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Now, well, how would we say that today? We would say the dice is rolled in Vegas and every stopping of the dice with those numbers up is from God. All of them. Or if you're uh, playing Scrabble at home and stick your hand into the bag and pull out your letters, God decides what letters you get. You play Uno, God decides. And lest you think that's trifling, try this. Are not two sparrows, this is Jesus talking, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, they are utterly insignificant. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. The roll of the dice in Vegas, every one of them, or in your board game at home, and the tiny bird dying in a thousand forests are governed by God. That's Jesus' way and the Proverbs' way of saying there aren't any details too small for his control. That's his way of saying it. If he were today, he'd talk in terms of molecules. He'd say with R.C. Sproul, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. From worms in the ground to stars in the galaxy, God governs. Take the book of Jonah, all right? You got a very big fish, and the Bible says that he commanded this fish to swallow Jonah, and the fish obeyed. So fish do God's bidding. If he says them to do this, they do it. And he commanded a plant to grow up to give Jonah some shade. Plant, grow up. It obeyed. Plants do the bidding of God. Then he commanded a worm to kill the plant to make Jonah hot and scold him for his bad attitude about Nineveh. So the worm obeyed. I take this totally seriously. Bacteria, tetsy flies, murderous viruses do God's bidding. They're not free any more than the worm or the whale or the plant just happened to grow up. God sees everything and if anything is about to happen that he doesn't want to happen, he just says, stop, and it obeys. 
And if it didn't stop, he didn't tell it to stop, which means he's got a plan for it. Or the stars. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why are stars where they are doing what they do? He is mighty in power. That's why. I'm totally not a naturalist. <laughs> I see fingers of God in the atom and in the galaxies all the time, every millisecond of history, controlling everything. I don't know what kind of God that you have who may be folding his arms, sitting back, doing nothing, letting the world run rampant. That's just not the biblical God, and therefore not our God. If the stars, how much more the weather, disasters, disease, disability, death. Psalm 147, verse 15. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. They had 40 inches last week in the, in the, in the Smoky Mountains. God did that. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? I love living in Minnesota. Is that cold? That's God. You haven't felt cold yet, all you Californians. Just arrived. Mm. He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and waters flow. That's... Psalm 47. Here's Job 37. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn round and round by his guidance to accomplish all his commands. He commands them, and on the face of the inhabitable world he does his bidding, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. I love how clear the Bible is about the sovereignty of God over the natural world. Snow, rain, cold, heat, Wind are the work of God, and when Jesus finds himself in the middle of a life-threatening raging storm, he stands up and speaks two words. Be still. And the wind stops, and the waves go flat. And he could have done it last Monday in New York. And if you say he couldn't have I don't know what kind of Jesus you have. Is he alive? Is he reigning? Is he the same Jesus today? Of course he is, which means anytime, anywhere, on the planet, any wind can be stopped with two words from heaven. Stop! And it would obey. And if he doesn't say it, he has purposes. There is no wind, there is no storm, there is no hurricane, there is no cyclone, there is no typhoon, there is no monsoon, there is no tornado over which Jesus cannot say, be still without getting off his throne and it will obey him. 
And if it blows, he intends it to blow, and he has purposes for it that are better than avoiding it. That's what I'd preach if I were in the middle of New York right now with the long six-hour lines at the gasoline and 98-plus people dead and new bodies being found everywhere. I wouldn't preach, my God is helpless. I would not. I would not take away the hope of these people by saying, you don't have a God who can help you because he's just too weak to stop a storm. How could he control the storms of your life? How could he help you at all if he can't speak what Jesus spoke? I wouldn't preach that way. I don't preach that way. We don't believe that way. And so it is with all the sufferings of life and all the losses and pains and groans of life. The Lord said to Moses, before I read this verse, I want to invite you to that conference on Thursday at the North Campus on disability. The works of God, God's good design in disability. And that, that kind of language gets you shot in some places. God's good design in disability. How dare we? How dare we have a conference with such a title? Come and find out. So here's the verse that the conference, one of them, is built on. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when Moses got all uppity about being unable to speak good enough, the Lord said to Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The person whom I've heard quote that verse most often is John Knight. Bless you, John, who has a blind son, born blind, no eyes. That's not easy. It wasn't easy. It isn't easy. We're not saying disability is easy. Life is not easy. First Peter 4. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. 1 Peter 3.17 It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering for doing good, God's will. Really? Yes. So whether we suffer from disability or whether we suffer from the evil of others, persecution, God ultimately decides whether we suffer or whether we live or whether we die. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 39. There is no God besides me, says the Lord. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and none can deliver out of my hand. Or... James 4.13 Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You got a plan to go to Duluth on Monday? You may not get there. And if you don't, it wasn't His plan. You may not live till Monday. And if you don't, that wasn't His plan. It was His plan for you to go home. If the Lord wills, we will live. I will finish this sermon if the Lord wills. If a wacko walks through the door, shoots me between the eyes, it was God's will. So be sure you don't say wrong things at the funeral. My wife will stand up and correct you. The roll of the dice, the fall of a bird, the crawl of a worm, the movement of the stars, the falling of snow, the blowing of wind, the loss of sight, the suffering of the saints, and the death of everybody. These are included in the word, I will accomplish all my purpose. I know there's a lot there. Um, we're not going to take time to discuss that any further. We talked about it quite a bit on Wednesday and also last Sunday. Uh, one thing to point out, though, you know, he just used, what, probably 25 verses in those few minutes. None of them were in my notes. Um, that's how much sovereignty is in the Bible. I mean, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different verses you could point to uh, to talk about God's sovereignty over absolutely everything. All right. <clears throat> um, one more thing on God's sovereignty, just generally speaking, before we get to some specifics here. God never does anything for only one reason. This is one, one of the reasons why it is foolish for us uh, to question God's sovereignty, because we see you know, one bad action, <clears throat> one thing that we think is terrible. Um, you know, this person died, you know, a young child or something, and we think, well, that's terrible. There's no good reason for that. But from God's vantage point, he sees so many more complexities and um, causes and effects that we don't even know about. And so for us to question his sovereignty is, is simply uh, foolish because he never does anything for only one reason. Now, uh, in application from the last couple of weeks that we've been seeing, really from the last several weeks, we've talked about God's self-sufficiency. Uh, we've talked about his incomprehensibility, that we can't uh, wrap our minds fully around him. We've said God is all-wise, he's all-knowing. Um, and then today and last week, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful. Uh, we said he was all good. He is loving. And so therefore, if we put all of that together, God controls and we trust. Right? If God is good, if God is all wise, if he is in control, if he has all the power, then he controls everything and we trust his control. A couple of other points under sovereignty before we get to the last one here. Number, I think this is number nine. God is sovereign over salvation. Uh, I know this is controversial to some, but to me it just seems so clear in the Bible that God is sovereign over salvation. That doesn't mean I have everything figured out about how that works with human agency. Uh, I don't pretend to understand everything about that. But I can read clear statements in the Bible and say, I believe that. And apparently, God decides who gets saved. He chooses who will become his children. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I, I don't know how to get around that. You know, that's just a crystal clear statement. Verse uh, 11 of the same chapter. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I would encourage you to read through Ephesians 1 if you have uh, more questions about it. I didn't type out all the verses there, but the first like 18 verses are all just talking about this, um, how God's chosen us in Christ. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Uh, Acts 2.47, talking about the church uh, in Jerusalem, praising God, having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God chose you to be saved. God chose to set you apart by His Spirit, and God chose you to believe the truth. Uh, the next verse, To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you just read that verse, right, it seems like this is all us. Uh, we come to him, we receive him, we believe in his name, and so he gives us the right to become children of God. But the next verse says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then again, last one here, Romans 9, verse 15, and again, there's many other verses that I could have included here. Uh, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Uh, again, wh whatever you may say about those texts, uh, and I could have included many more, at the end of the day, uh, we have to agree God is sovereign over salvation. Uh, however, all the details of that work out, I don't know, and neither do you. Uh, and, and nobody in Christian history has quite nailed down exactly how all of these pieces fit together. But we have to acknowledge that God is sovereign over salvation. And one of the ways that I <clears throat> become convinced about a theological position is when, when you just see it on every page of the Bible. And this is one of those. Where if you, if you read the New Testament carefully, I mean even in the Old Testament carefully, you'll just see this over and over and over again. Um, so God is sovereign over salvation. Number 10, God is sovereign over the gifts he equips his people with. And this will be the last category of sovereignty we look at. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are uh, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is speaking about gifts given to members of, the, of a church uh, from God's Spirit. Verse 8, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by 
the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Um, so there's two places in the New Testament that speak about spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Uh, the lists are different, and one of the things that that clues into me is these are not exhaustive. Okay, so I think there are spiritual gifts that aren't even necessarily mentioned in those lists. Um, but God gives gifts to people uh, in, the, in the church. In, in every church, every Christian has certain gifts that God has given them. And it, and it is God who is in control of who gets what. And this isn't just talking about uh, things we would think of maybe as spiritual gifts, like the ability to teach or interpret scripture or whatever. I think this even applies to what we would just consider to be skills. So for instance, in the Old Testament, Exodus 31, this is talking um, during the instructions when God is telling Moses about how he should build the tabernacle. It says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of your, uh, Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. Okay, so he gave Bezalel certain, and it says, by the Spirit of God, he was given the ability to work with these materials and build things. Basically, he was a carpenter, and that talent that just looks to us like a natural skill that he developed was given to him by the Spirit of God. Verse 6 of the same chapter, Behold, I have appointed with him... Ohaliah, the son of, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that name, uh, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all uh, able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent. So God gave instructions to Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle, I want you to put these vessels in there, and I've supplied you with some people that I've given the skills to be able to build this stuff. And it was given to them by the Spirit of God. And so uh, I think the same principles would apply in the New Testament, that some people are given certain skills. Uh, I mean, think of just in our church, right? Malachi designs our church logo and stuff like, where does he get all of that? Okay, obviously, yes, it's a skill that he's developed, he went to school for, uh, but God has placed him here and has used him to help our church. And so I think spiritual gifts don't just apply to things that we think of as spiritual you know, if somebody's really good at plumbing and they're helping their church in that, I think that's a, a way of using the gifts that God has given them in the service of God's body. All right, we do need to hurry if we're going to finish up here. Last attribute. Uh, just an application point on that before we finish. In light of the fact that God does this, that God gifts and he is sovereign over the gifting of people, this was the main point I wanted to get to, we ought to trust in what God has gifted and called us to do. Right? It's not God's will for everyone in the church to function the same way. Paul talks about this as members of a body. Um, you know, the eye can't look at the nose and say, I don't need you. That whole passage is basically saying everyone has different gifts, and we need to trust in what God's gifted us to do and work out those giftings in a local church. All right, last attribute, God is immutable. The immutability of God is often simply defined as God never changes, and I think that's a little overly simplistic. And we're going to address, uh, if we have time, some of the problems with that. But let's look at a few general statements Scripture makes. First of all, Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ the same, is the same yesterday 
and today and forever. Uh, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So again, many would just read those verses quickly and say, uh, God doesn't change at all in any way. Uh, but that sort of simplistic idea of immutability leads to some problems. For example, uh, sometimes God is angry and sometimes God is happy. And so, you know, we see in Scripture over and over the phrase, the anger of the Lord was kindled, right? God became angry. So in some fashion, that would constitute a change. His disposition changed. Um, Wayne Grudem offers, I think, a much more precise definition in his systematic theology. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So the way in which God is unchangeable is his essence, his character, his will. God himself never changes. His being in essence doesn't change, which means his attributes don't change. And one of the reasons uh, that I put this at the end of our list of attributes is to say that this is the safeguard of all the others, right? If immutability wasn't true, uh, could we really trust in the justice of God? Maybe he was just at one point in time, but he's not just now. Maybe he was loving back then, but he's not loving now. Uh, but what holds all of the attributes together is the immutability of God, which says God is, has always been this way. He's always been omniscient, uh, omnipotent, whatever, and he'll always be that way. Those things never change. What Scripture reveals to us about God we can trust is true eternally because God is immutable. God is unchanging in his character or perfections, uh, meaning he is just as good and just as he ever was and always will be. God is unchanging in his purposes and promises. Whatever God's decreed, he will accomplish. Uh, let's look at some categories here with a few texts. First, the being of God doesn't change. Psalm 102, verse 26, they will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. Uh, we do need to go quickly here. I'm running out of time. Number two, the mind of God cannot change. We talked about this under omniscience, so I'm not going to dive into it too much, but Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? Number three, the plans of God never change. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Number four, the love of God doesn't change. By that, I basically am saying his love is um, a committed love. right? God doesn't fall in and out of love with his people. There's a covenant love of God. Psalm 103, verse 17, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So the love of God does not change. Number five, the goodness of God towards us does not change. Uh, James 1, verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Number six, the decrees and purposes of God never change. And this goes hand in hand with what we've already looked at with sovereignty. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Job 23.13, he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? Whatever he desires, that he does. There is no reason for any change in the will of God. We change our minds often because of a lack of foresight, right? We realize something that we hadn't seen coming or some circumstance that we hadn't anticipated, and so we change our minds about something. We come to a different decision, or we just come to understand something more clearly. But everything that God knows, he's always known. And so there is no reason why he would decide something and then change his mind about it. Number seven, the promises of God never fail. Hebrews 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So with all of that in mind, when we talk about the immutability of God, um, it might be more helpful to think of it in terms of dependability than simple unchangeableness. Um, that seems to be the point of these texts, right? We can trust God. He is faithful. He is dependable. Uh, this is why you find so often in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a rock. Uh, for example, Isaiah 26, verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So God is immutable. He doesn't change. Uh, his character, his will, his purpose, his promises, none of these things change, and so we can trust him. We can trust uh, God is dependable. Um, there, I do have a few. I had some notes here on the exceptions, things, uh, many of which we covered under omniscient, so I don't think I'm going to go there today because I've only got a couple of minutes left. Let's advance here. Let's skip some stuff. Um, There we go. As God's children, immutability is the grounds for our confidence and perseverance, right? And this goes along with what we've already said. If God's will and purpose doesn't change, right, and he chooses who will be saved, then we can trust that if he's chosen us, uh, we're not going to lose that salvation. He's not going to change his mind about us. Uh, whatever God starts, he finishes. And so Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Um, more specifically, Romans 8, verse 29, those who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's often referred to that text as the golden chain of redemption, uh, that those who God elects and those who God draws to himself, uh, those who place their faith in Christ, He's not going to fail to sanctify them and to eventually glorify them. Um, so there's no such thing as a, a somebody who loses their salvation, right? That's a Christian one day and then loses that, as if God kind of gave up. Uh, God knew every sin we would commit before we were saved. Uh, God knew everything that we would do with our life before we were saved. So if he chose us, knowing all of that, he's not going to change his mind about us. If God has chosen to save you, there's no way 
of you losing your salvation because God's purposes never change. Um, I, we're not going to have time to talk any further. If you have questions, uh, come Wednesday night on sovereignty or, or immutability. I just want to give a few concluding thoughts on the attributes of God. Um, and then next week, we're going to dive straight into the Trinity. That'll be our discussion for the next few weeks. I'm excited about that. I've uh, been looking forward to it for a while. But as we wrap up the attributes, um, is there a primary attribute of God? I, I don't think so. I don't think we can say that uh, one of the attributes is somehow uh, the main one and all the others are below that. We need to hold all of them in tension. Um, another question would be, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, some people have pointed out that God is you know, angry and wrathful in the Old Testament and loving and forgiving in the New Testament. And I think if you just read the Bible carefully, you're going to see that that's not true. Um, there are so many instances of God's grace in the Old Testament toward Israel. I mean, over and over and over again. And then there's also many instances in the New Testament of God's wrath. Uh, I mean, think of Ananias and Sapphira struck dead for one lie. Like, that, that's a bit of a caricature to say that the Old Testament God is angry and wrathful. The New Testament God is just uh, soft and loving. Uh, I, I don't see that sort of dichotomy. Um, uh, we'll finish with one quote here from A.W. Tozer. I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church through the years has arisen from believing about God things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things equally true. To magnify any attribute to the exclusion of another is to head straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology. And yet we are all constantly tempted to do just that. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in such a way as to virtually deny that he is just, which the Bible also teaches. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it is made to contradict his holiness, or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys or at least greatly diminishes his goodness and love. And so... With all the attributes that we've studied over the last couple of months, they need to be held together. Um, we don't want to pit one attribute against the other. We don't want to elevate one attribute to where we forget about all the others. All of these things are true about God all of the time. And every action of God is in keeping with all of his attributes. Um, so when you see God's justice or his holiness, it's not like he's just not being loving in that moment. Uh, all of the attributes of God are true with every action that he takes.